So we are now on the other side of Thanksgiving, which means we are racing rapidly towards Christmas. Uh, we will start our Christmas series next week. Uh, as promised, today I'm going to be talking a little bit about Thanksgiving. Uh, so many traditions are associated with Thanksgiving, right? Lots of those traditions involve food. And I'm so grateful for that. Uh, I'm thankful for that. Uh, for many, at least for rational people, Thanksgiving has to involve a turkey. Okay? Uh, if you don't think Thanksgiving needs turkey, then I have no part with you. Uh, what goes alongside the turkey is tradition for many families as well. Stuffing, cranberry sauce, green bean casserole, rolls, gravy, all that good stuff. What comes after is important too. Pumpkin pie, apple pie, cheesecake, whatever that looks like for your family. Food is a big part of traditional Thanksgiving for us. For a good chunk of people, Thanksgiving tradition involves football. And what started as the annual Thanksgiving game now has evolved and multiplied into three games on Thanksgiving. It went from one to two, and now we have three games on Thanksgiving Day um, every fourth Thursday in November. For others, watching the Macy's Parade is tradition for you and for your family on Thanksgiving. And finally, there are those, you know, personal family traditions, playing games together or spending time allowing each member of the family to share something that they are thankful for this year. It's a great question to ask on Thanksgiving, but it's a great question that we should be asking every day. What am I thankful for? What am I grateful for? Because that gratitude changes your entire demeanor when you focus on those things that you are thankful for. Uh, and especially on a day that's dedicated to it. So what are the things that you are most thankful for? What are those things that continually come back to your mind that you, are, you feel blessed about? I asked the question a couple of weeks back on Facebook to get some responses from some of our church family. And we're going to talk more about some of those answers in just a little bit. But as Christ followers, we often list the things we are thankful that God has given to us or provided for us. We talk about stuff when we're talking about things that we're thankful for. If I were making a list, it, it, it would begin with Jesus and the salvation he won for me on the cross. That always has to top my list as far as things that I am thankful for because it's something I'm incapable of bringing about on my own. I could not work out my own salvation without Christ first going to the cross for me. And then there's Melissa, the most incredible woman I know, uh, who's feeling kind of sick today. So if you could pray for her, that would be awesome. Uh, but uh, Melissa's home, and she just she's feeling well, and she probably could be here, but she didn't want to take any chances of getting anybody else sick. And so she decided to uh, stay home this morning, and she's feeling uh, really missing out. So uh, if you all just everybody say hi, Melissa. There you go, babe. Hi. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm thankful for my seven kids, each different, each amazing in their own way. And finally, for our church. I can't tell you how thankful I am for Trilogy and this amazing story that God has been writing for the past six years. But these are the things in life that we are the most thankful for. It's those kinds of things, those kinds of lists. And another way of asking the same question is, what do I value the most? What do I value the most in my life? And as I hear answers to that question, I have to think about the rest of the year. You know, we say those things on Thanksgiving, but what about the other 364 days a year and that attitude of gratitude that we see manifested on Thanksgiving disappears really quickly. You know, usually the next day as Black Friday hits and people are rushing to buy all the sales, and they're like, well, I'm not really content anymore. <laughs> now I need more stuff. Thankfulness then turns to complaining, contentment turns to dissatisfaction, and then I start to ask myself questions like, 
Why is it that some people are happy and others are not? Why are some people happy and others are not? How can some people go through very, very difficult times and experiences and still live positively and with a great attitude? Maybe you've asked some of these same questions. Why do some people's happiness depend on what they have and other people's doesn't depend on that? I'm sure just like me, you've look, at times looked around the world and you, and you asked, why them, God, and not me? If we're honest, we've probably all asked that question at some point in time. It's not a great question to ask. But then we ask sometimes even worse questions than that. Instead of asking, why them, God, and not me, sometimes we get to the point of asking, why me and not them? Why am I going through this pain and they have it so good? Why do I have to have this horrible thing happen to me and they don't ever experience something this bad? Would we ever really verbalize a question like that? Would we ever speak that? Maybe not, but most of us have gotten to the point of thinking it at least once. Why am I suffering while they are doing great? What we're really asking is why couldn't it be them instead of me? And the answer to all the huge list of questions I've assaulted you with this morning is one of perspective. It's all about where our focus is. It's all about who our focus is on. And anytime that focus is right here, we start to drift into those unhealthy areas. Your life and your attitude is going to vary greatly depending on who your focus is on. If your focus is in the right place, then your attitudes are going to flow in that right direction as well. If your focus is in the wrong place, then your attitudes are going to flow in the wrong direction. Listen to some of the answers given by people from Trilogy from the question I asked on Facebook. I asked y'all to message me privately, and so I will not give names because I didn't say I was going to say who they were from, but I will just share some of the responses. First person said, I am thankful for the Holy Spirit who guides me in all truth and lets me know when dangers are around that I don't immediately see. I am thankful for wisdom from the Lord that teaches me how to handle every situation. I am thankful for opportunities, even painful ones, that allow me the chance to show grace and love when I don't feel like it. Second person said, when asked what I'm thankful for, I typically revert to the immediate and more tangible things like good health, my family, financial provision. And yes, I am thankful for those things, but what are the things that I am overwhelmed with gratitude for? What are the things that we find worth of singing songs or praises to the Lord for day after day? What can we celebrate that the world cannot? I have a new heart. I am a new creation. My mind is being transformed. I have been redeemed. I have been chosen and given the gift of faith. I am a child of God. Next person said, there are so many things that I am thankful for, so it is kind of hard to narrow it down. So I will mention one that really stands out, and that is that God always will give direction when I ask for it and wait for him to make clear his plan. One thing that I have found out is that I cannot sit by and do nothing while I wait, but continue to be involved in those things that I know that God has already shown me that I need to do. I am not only thankful for this part of my walk with God, but also for the exciting things that God lets me do when I ask him for direction. Aren't these great? Next person said, here's my pathway to thanksgiving. When you asked us to message you what we are thankful for, I immediately thought of prophecy, no doubt. But prophecy falls a little shy of everything. So then I said, ah, the Bible, got to be thankful for that. But still, as I was compiling my thoughts, it fell a little short. Of course, the Holy Spirit. Obviously, I'm thankful for him, the connection to everything, but still something wasn't right. So as I was contemplating my thankfulness, I thought, what is the connection? What is the root of this? And it dawned on me. Though I am completely grateful for all of these blessings listed above, I am so grateful for God's love. 
So many things that I can think of are ours through the love of God. Truly, this is what I am thankful for. And finally, the last person. I am thankful for all the hardships I have had to endure. For it is there in the place of darkness that his light is the brightest. My proof for how greatly God loves me is not measured in how good my life is, but rather in the number of times he has saved me when there is nothing good left. Man, I don't even have to preach after this. Uh, it is through these moments where faith is formed and can never be taken away. Guys, I am so proud of our church family. And I don't mean that to sound condescending at all because there are days when I wouldn't be able to write something so wonderful because I'm having a me moment or a bad attitude day. But sometimes you teach and you share and you preach and you sit back and wonder, is it sinking in? You know, are people really getting it? Are people really understanding that this isn't all about us? That God has called us to love him and to love others, and that's where our focus should be. And when I read answers like these, when I see this, and there were more, I, I just couldn't read them all. I just didn't have time to share them. I know that we get it. Our church is full of people who get it. Every one of these answers was God-focused and not me-focused. Every one of those. And that just shows that the people who wrote these answers know a truth that runs all throughout the pages of Scripture. Are you ready for this truth? It's not about you. It's not about you. And I know that's not a feel-good message. That's not one of those happy, bland, I'm just going to pump people up today by telling them, you don't matter. No, you do matter because you matter to God and you have value to God and others. But it's not about you. And we have to have that focus. There's a man in the Bible who lived this concept out as well as anyone ever has. And it's part of his story that I want to look at together this morning. And that man's name was Abraham. He was chosen by God to be the father of the nation of Israel. That's a pretty high calling. Uh, it was from him that all of God's people would come. He was chosen for his faith. He was chosen for his obedience. Uh, he was chosen for his trust and his love for God. And God identified him and says, I'm going to use you. And we can't give a summary of his entire life this morning. Uh, but I do want to look at one snapshot to help us see where his focus was. Just a little bit of background on Abraham. God had promised him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. That's the promise God made to him, that he would be the father of nations. And yet, late into his life, beyond he and his wife's childbearing years, Sarah, his wife, still had not had a child. She was barren. She couldn't conceive. And so they were, he's looking at this promise that God had made to him, and they're still without a child. And God performed a miracle, allowed them to conceive a child when they were well past the years where they could have, and Isaac was born. The promised son who would be the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise. And that brings us to Genesis 22. And I want to read this story. It's probably the most famous story from the life of Abraham. And it begins like this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. 
The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire and for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? I want to just stop for a second and just ask you, how in the world could Abraham have not collapsed in that moment? As he's on this path to obey this inexplicable command from God and his son his only son whom he loves more than anything in the world turns to him and says dad where's where's the animal for the sacrifice innocently just unbelievable God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering my son Abraham answered and they both walked on together when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am, which is the exact response he gave at the beginning when God asked him and called to him. He says, yes, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Just a mind-blowing story from the life of Abraham. There's several things that I want to make sure we notice in this familiar story today. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that God had already chosen Abraham, and now he was testing him. There's a really important order to this. This test that he's putting Abraham through here is not a weeding out process. Abraham didn't have to go through the elimination rounds and then a stage battle and then finally letting the home audience vote before he was selected as the father of Israel, okay? Uh, he didn't have to go through a test before being chosen by God to be used for a purpose because here's the order. God doesn't call those who are tested. He tests those he has called. God doesn't call those who are tested. He tests those he has called. God has called you to do something incredible for him. Each one of us has been made for a purpose. We've been designed to accomplish something for God, to, to do God's will here on earth. God has called you to be an example to others. He's called you to live life sacrificially. God has called you to heaven. And testing on earth prepares and purifies us for eternity with God in heaven. And really, is faith truly faith if there's nothing to prove it? 
Faith has to be tested. Our faith becomes real when we have to use that faith. That's why we say we exercise our faith, because there's a growth process to our faith. As we exercise physically, we grow and are strengthened and are built up. As we exercise our faith, our faith is grown and strengthened and built up. James 2 says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. So our actions, yours and mine, the way we respond to the testing, the way we respond to the trials of life, and let's be real, there are many. We go through testing and trials in this life all the time. They define who we are as a follower of Jesus. Those trials define who we are. Our actions make our faith complete. The way we live, the way we react to good circumstances don't define anything. Anybody can react positively to good times. Yay, things are going well. We can do that. It's the difficult times that make us shine. That's when we become those lights in darkness. So as you walk through difficulty, as you spend time in the valleys of life, remember that it is an opportunity. Yeah, I know, it doesn't always feel like an opportunity when you're walking through the valley. But it's an opportunity to demonstrate your faith, to show to those around you that you serve the same God when things are rough as you do when life is great. The next thing I want you to see about Abraham is Abraham didn't understand what God was asking him to do, but he didn't have to. Abraham didn't understand what God was asking him to do. Who could? Who in the world could understand this, take your son and go sacrifice him? Nobody could wrap their minds around that. How in the world could anyone possibly get what God was asking of him? Had Abraham been able to look maybe far into the distant future and see how God would sacrifice his only son for us? Maybe if he knew that, that might have given him some insight into this moment? Maybe. But he had none of that. His perspective was limited to what he was going through right then. That's all he had to work with. And that's exactly the same limitation that you have and I have. We can only see what is happening right now. We can't see around the next corner. But our obedience to God should never be conditional on our understanding of what is happening. Our obedience to God should never be conditional on our understanding of what is happening. You see, most of us can't see past the obstacles that are right in front of us right now. They overwhelm us. That's all we can see is what we're going through. So how do we move past them? How do we get around them? And most of the time, we don't. Most of the time, we don't get around them. We walk right through them to the other side, and usually, it's painful. It hurts. But ultimately, it shouldn't matter because God is in control. He is leading us. He's perfect in all his ways. He's got the plan. And remember, it's not about us. Anything we go through, anything I have to go through is okay if God is glorified. If someone is blessed, if someone is drawn closer to knowing Jesus, then anything I go through in this life, short of throwing away my salvation, is worth it if someone can know Jesus. 
Because when your focus is on eternity, when your focus is on loving God and loving others and not loving ourselves, when that is our focus, then everything else fades into the background. It's not about us. It's just not about us. The truth will guide you through just that truth, that it's just not about us, will guide you through about everything you will face in life. No matter what circumstances you face, bad times, good times, slow times, fast-paced times, everything has a better perspective when we understand that life isn't about us. It's about God and others. And I know some of you are completely sick of hearing me say this. It's not about us. But that's okay. It's not about you anyway. Now, <laughs> I joke there, but there is actually a lot of truth in that statement. Uh, because what I share on my Sunday messages are never about any one person sitting in the seats. I don't target my sermons like, oh, so-and-so is going through this, or so-and-so really needs to hear this. Uh, that's not how I write my messages. My Sunday sermons are always about being true to what God has asked me to share. And that's where it comes from, and that's where it will always remain. The next thing I want you to, to hear about Abraham is this. Abraham didn't avoid anything. He went through it. He didn't avoid anything. You say, well, God, you know, spared Isaac and provided the ram, so Abraham didn't have to go through with it. No, Abraham went through it, folks. He marched up that mountain with his son. He had his son with the sticks on his back. He got up there. He tied his son up, church. As a dad, how in the world can you envision this man binding his son and laying his son on the altar? I can't even wrap my head, let alone my heart, around what that must have been for him. So you say, well, God spared him. No, he went through it all. He got to the point of raising the knife before God intervened. He made the sacrifice. This wasn't a back out thing. He made it. He had the knife in his hand. He was going through with it. So many times when we're facing something difficult, we pray for God to take the difficulty away, don't we? And I don't think there's anything wrong with asking God to do that. That's a fine prayer. But if we look at Scripture and the stories of God's people throughout history, more often than not, God doesn't remove the trial. He takes us by the hand and leads us through it. More often than not, that's how God operates because we're grown in that process. We become stronger. We learn to depend on him. God gets the glory. Others are affected by our faith when they see that our faith doesn't depend on the circumstances of life, but on the consistency of our God. That's where our faith gets strong. God is the same no matter what your circumstances look like. Hebrews 13:8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord and I do not change. God is consistent. God is constant. He does not change. Your problems will change. The people in your life will change. Whom you can depend on will change. Even the promises that you cling to will change. But God does not and his promises remain forever. Next thing about Abraham. God called and Abraham responded. It seems simple, doesn't it? God calls, we respond. God challenges, we go. But how often does it play out quite differently? God calls, that part is constant. God is always calling. He's leading, he's showing the way, he's providing opportunities for us. But our response does not always mirror Abraham's. We hesitate, 
We procrastinate. We disobediate. I'm sorry, I had to make them all sound the same. Um, sometimes we halfway go in the direction that God is leading, really slowly, hoping God will change his mind, right? Let us off the hook. Or sometimes God says, stay. You're right where I want you for this season. And our impatience or our, our need for something different pushes us ahead of where God wants us when he just wants us to stay and remain and plug in and work. You see this in church where people go to a church and God says, this is where I want you. And then three weeks later, somebody offends them and they're like, well, obviously I have to find a new church now. No, you get offended all the time by your family. And that's what the church is. You're going to get offended, folks. I probably will offend you at some point. In fact, I, I really will. Yeah, thank you for that. That was too loud, bro. You keep that amen to yourself, Pastor Ken. Um, and as I do, please tell me so I can ask for your forgiveness and we can move forward. That's what family's all about. We, we offend one another, hopefully not often, but when we do, we ask forgiveness and we move forward. But I see too many people who get impatient or they, they, they just like, well, God, told, God brought me here, but now three weeks later, he's moving me on. <laughs> you know, if God calls, hey, I'm not going to tell you no. But sometimes God leads away and we resist. Sometimes God tells us to stay and we push through. And we just kind of tend to do the opposite of where God's leading. And here's the thing. Abraham's here I am response was not this casual wave of the hand. Abraham, yo, over here. You know, that's the, the, it was not this casual, flippant response from Abraham to God. When God called, Abraham knew that to respond was to respond. You need to be ready to move. You were ready to go do or accomplish anything for him. When, when God spoke to Abraham back when he was called Abram, when God spoke to him and said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, I want you to go. Go to the land that I will show you. <laughs> now that's a call. He didn't even tell him where to go. He says, I'll show you later. Just get up, go, uproot. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's a leader in his community. And God says, yeah, pack everything up and just head on out. And he did. He obeyed. So here's the thing. We need to be ready to go do or accomplish anything for him. And listen to what the story tells about his actions after God laid it out for him. Okay, he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, the son that you love so much, and go sacrifice him. The next line in this story, he got up early in the morning and, if there was ever a day to sleep in, really, to lie in bed thinking about what you were about to do, but no, Abraham had been called, and now he was going to obey. Abraham picked up the knife to sacrifice his son, and at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him. It wasn't until Abraham committed to his path of obedience that God intervened. I want you to hear that. It wasn't until Abraham committed to his path of obedience that God intervened. It wasn't until he laid his son on the altar. It wasn't until he picked up the knife to carry out this unexplainable task God had given him. Why? Because our response is often a prerequisite for God's response. We want to see God step in. We want to see God do something. But our response is often a prerequisite for that. Most of the promises of God in the Bible are conditional. If you will, then God will. 
if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we have to confess our sins. That's the first part. Listen to Hebrews 10. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Notice that phrase. You will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. You continue to do God's will, then you will receive all that he's promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, and my righteous ones will live by faith, but I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones. There's the condition. We are faithful whose souls will be saved. The Bible is full of these moments. Condition and response. Condition and promise. Condition and miracle. We see it again and again and again throughout Scripture, but we have to do our part in the process. There is a sense as you read the Bible, when you read about these faithful followers of Jesus, read through Hebrews 11 sometime, as it talks about these heroes of the faith all throughout the pages of Scripture, as you read through, you, you get this sense of this no matter what mentality that they will follow God no matter what, wherever he leads, whatever the cost, whatever the pain, whatever I have to do, I will follow God. I will obey, I will keep going, I will follow wherever he leads no matter what. The economy is bad right now in our country, in our world. People don't realize how precipitous our economy is right now. And you are trusting God right now. But what if it gets worse? What if it gets a lot worse? What if you lose your job? What if you lose your home? What if the economy collapses completely? Does that change anything? Comfort level? Yeah. The way we live our lives? Yes. What we call normal? Yes. But it doesn't change the most important things. God is God. He loves you. You're spending eternity in heaven with him. Those things do not change. All of this life is lived to love him and love others. And a nice home and a good job are not prerequisites for either of those. You can love God and love others no matter what you face in this life. And it's a hard statement. I get it. I don't want that for any of us. I don't want us to go through hard times. I don't want us to go through rough patches. But I want us to be prepared to obey no matter what comes. Our obedience should, should never depend on feeling content. Why do I tithe? So that I can be blessed financially? No. I do it because God has told me to. And more than that, he's told me to be a cheerful giver, to give with a good attitude. I don't give because of anything it would get me. I give because I want to be a part of what God is doing. Because I decided a long time ago that I'm going to obey God no matter what. You need to determine in your heart now that you will obey God no matter what. Because once the difficult times come, once the persecution starts, once we start facing those types of circumstances in our lives, it's too late to make that decision. You need to pre-decide, how will I respond? No matter what comes down the road, no matter what trials I may face, he may not deliver you from going through something difficult. Did you know that almost all of the, of the original disciples were martyred for their faith? God allowed that. He didn't deliver them from their martyr's death. They went through it. They stayed true to the end. 
And these were people that lived with Jesus for three years. You think if anybody would have had the, the, you know, the closeness with God to say, hey, God, could you get me out of this here? You think it would be the guys that lived with Jesus for three years, right? But every one of them, except John, died a martyr's death. No matter what trials you may face, he may not deliver you from going through it, but he will go through it with you. And you can be confident of this. If he allows you to go through it, you or someone else will be better off for it. God has a purpose and a plan. Hannah, would you come? And I want you to see this last point now of, of what Abraham went through and what we can learn from this. Abraham needed to show God and maybe himself that he loved God more than Isaac. Abraham needed to show God and maybe even himself that he loved God more than Isaac. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, I love this phrase, whom you love so much. God is laying it out before him saying, hey, you love this kid and you should. But take him and go to the land of Moriah. Was Isaac a bad thing? Hardly. Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise. There was nothing bad about Isaac. But Abraham was at risk of loving Isaac more than God, of loving the fulfillment of God's promise more than the one who fulfills the promise. He was at risk of trying to make things happen on his own instead of trusting God to see it through. And here's something that's so important to catch. Where was Abraham's faith? What did he envision happening here? It wasn't that God would obviously never ask him to sacrifice Isaac. Some people miss this. They think that Abraham was thinking God would do what he did and provide a ram because he told Isaac on the way up the mountain, God will provide. No, God had already provided for the sacrifice in his son Isaac. You see, as we look later in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham thought God might possibly bring Isaac back to life after he had obeyed and sacrificed his son. That's where Abraham's head was. He was ready to go through with it, folks. Abraham was willing to do the unthinkable to go where God would lead because no matter what, God is good. No matter what, God is faithful. No matter what, God will lead me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Where was Abraham's faith? It was in the promise of God. It was in his word. God had made a promise to Abraham and he knew that God would see it done. He would be the father of a nation. He would see his descendants outnumber the stars in the sky. If that was to happen, he knew it had to come through Isaac. So God had a plan. God had a way. And Abraham proved beyond any doubt that his love for God and his willingness to obey no matter what were the most important things in the world to him, above his possessions, above his family, above everything. Luke 14, Jesus said, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. In other words, nothing can become more important than your love for God and your willingness to go where he leads. Let nothing in your life become so important that you risk missing out on God's plan, on his direction, and his purpose for your life. Put everything in God's hands. Let his will be done in your life and everything that's important to you. So what is it in your life? 
What is so important to you that it risks supplanting God as the reason you live? Is it your possessions? Is it your family? Is it your career? Is it a hobby? Is it a habit? If the front of this room were a giant altar like Abraham made for Isaac, what would God have you lay on that altar this morning? What is God asking you to lay down this morning? Would you obey? Would you be willing to make the sacrifice? What is so important to you that you would hesitate to give it up if God asked? That's the exact thing God is asking you to lay down because it's at risk of becoming more important than God to you, of becoming an idol, of becoming the reason you do what you do in life when only God deserves to occupy that space. What if all of us here began truly living not for what we were trying to keep hold of, but began living for the God who holds all things in his hands? It would be transformational. I want us to think of thanksgiving in this context today. Abraham became more thankful than ever for Isaac after this. He became more thankful for God and his blessing and his provision after this. Because when we're willing to let it go and God blesses and returns, our gratitude grows. Living when you're afraid to lose something isn't really living. You see, freedom comes when we make the decision to forget about ourselves, lay down the things that are most important to us, and truly live for God alone. That's what freedom looks like to a follower of Jesus. So let's make the tough choices, church. Let's walk the path Abraham walked together. Let's make the decision to lay down everything that could come between God and allow God to decide what stays on the altar and what we can continue to carry with us on our journey. The fulfillment of God's promises lies on the other side of our willingness to obey. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Praise you, Lord. Praise you, God. As we get ready to close out in prayer, we've talked a lot about sacrifice. We've talked a lot about willingness to obey and follow where God is leading. That decision in our lives to follow wherever God is leading begins where we say, it's not about me, and I'm going to lay my own life on the altar. Say, God, I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to live for you. See, the Bible says every one of us are separated from God by our sin. Not one of us is able to escape that. We've all done something wrong, and that breaks our relationship with God. And there's not one thing we can do. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What we've earned because of our disobedience to God is death, separation from God for all eternity in hell. And that's bad news. But the good news, the gospel, that's what gospel really means is good news. The good news is that God made a way. He provided a way for us to be forgiven through Jesus. Jesus came and lived the only perfect life that's ever been lived. He went to the cross and he sacrificed himself. The Bible says he took my sin, carried it upon himself onto that cross, and my sin was nailed to the cross along with Jesus. So was yours. And then three days later, he was resurrected. He came back to life, and he demonstrated victory over sin and over death. So my sin went to the cross with Jesus. It stayed there while Jesus came back to life. And the Bible says that all I need to do is ask Jesus to forgive me and commit myself to living for him, to doing what Abraham did, to following him no matter what the cost. 
And as we do that, as we recognize our need for him and we ask God to forgive us, the Bible says that we become new creations. God wipes away our past, eliminates all of it, and makes us a new creation. That he doesn't see our sin anymore. He doesn't see that. All he sees when he looks at us is Jesus. It's a miracle. So some of you may be here this morning and you've never taken that step of faith to say, I'm going to lay myself down, God. I'm going to get out of the way so you can have your way in my life. I want all you have for me starting with forgiveness of my past, forgiveness of my present, forgiveness of my future. All of my sin wiped away in one moment. And I just want to ask real quickly this morning, if you're here, as everybody bows their heads and gets ready to pray, if you're here and you would say, Pastor Jeff, that's me, I want to pray and ask God to forgive me so that I can experience that miracle in my life, so that I can be forgiven. If that's you this morning, would you just lift your hand real quickly, and I'll pray for you as we close the service and allow God to make that transformational moment in your life. I'll wait just a second as God's speaking to you. Would you just lift your hand real fast and just say, God, that's me. I want all you have for me. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. God, I pray for those that raised their hand this morning. And whether it's for the first time or just to confirm things again, Lord, they're making the statement saying, I'm going to lay myself down. And Lord, I pray that you would receive their sacrifice this morning of saying, it's not about me. I'm laying myself down. Lord, I pray that you would flood them with forgiveness and your love and once again make them a new creation in Jesus. We thank you, God, for what you're doing right now in their lives. And God, I want to continue to pray for the rest of us this morning who may be sitting here and, Holy Spirit, you're already bringing things to our minds of things that we're holding on to, things that we're holding on way too tightly. And God, it's at risk of getting in between us and you. It's that thing or things are at risk of becoming more important in our lives than you are. It's preventing us from following no matter what. And Lord, as we're in that moment of of having those things brought to our minds, Lord, I pray that you would give us that moment of clarity right now to say, God, I'm laying it on the altar. I'm willing to let anything go to be able to follow you completely. I'm just going to stop my prayer for about 10 seconds here. And would you just do some work with the Holy Spirit in your own heart? And if God has laid some things on your mind and on your heart today, would you just pray a prayer just in your own mind and just say, God, I'm laying it down. God, I don't know what all the things were that we're just dealt with in this room. But God, I know it pleased you. And Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us, whatever we just laid down, whatever we figuratively said, God, this is yours. It's not mine. God, help us to leave it on the altar. And Lord, I pray that you would, in some cases, say thank you for laying that down. I give it back to you. And for others of us, God, it may be, hey, I want it to stay there. Maybe it was a bad habit. Maybe it was misplaced priorities, whatever that looks like. 
But God, I pray that we would all walk out of here today with a renewed vision of what it looks like to love you and to love those around us. God, we have truly thankful hearts today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live it out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.